You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 2nd of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. And I will do everything I can to help. I love this country and I feel honoured to have served it. And I will do everything I can in future to help this great country succeed. Thank you very much. Yes, thanks for your input. But now, apparently, David Cameron wants to come back. My guests, Mary Dejewski and Joy Ladico, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including a look ahead to the United States' unusually anxiously awaited midterm elections, a dimming, if not a switching off, of the red lights of Amsterdam, and the new technology which will make it possible for professors to literally phone their lectures in. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Mary Dejewski, columnist for The Independent and The Guardian, and Joy Ladico, columnist at The Evening Standard. Welcome both. And we start in the United States, where President Donald Trump may be about to enjoy his last weekend with a friendly Congress. The US votes in midterm elections on Tuesday, an event usually more or less ignored by the wider world and indeed by many Americans. Things being as they are, however, these will be the most scrutinised midterms in modern history, mostly by a world seeking reassurance that the United States has not entirely parted company with the plot. The impending vote has predictably brought out the spectacular worst in Trump, who has been fanning anti-immigrant paranoia, sending the US military on an absurd wild goose chase and indulging anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Um, Joy, you're going to be there. You're going to America. I'm rolling into New York uh, and then uh, on to Washington, actually, for the midterms itself. Uh, and this, I, I was actually in New York uh, two years ago, covering from the street the Trump election. And by God, New York hated him. I mean, there were, you know, <laughs> spontaneous uh, um, crowds popping up uh, opposite his building, uh, hanging off scaffolding, just shouting at him. Uh, and I'd be quite interested to see what the mood there is going is to be over the next few days, because I think they felt very betrayed by the rest of the country. Um, Mary, do you place any faith in the poll suggesting that the Republicans might be in for a bit of a caning on Tuesday? I mean, traditionally, midterms, <laughs> midterms much like by-elections here in the UK, are often an excuse for angry voters to give the government of the day a bit of a kicking. Yes, and it would be actually quite a turn-up for the books if Trump, or rather his Republicans, um, did spectacularly well in these elections, because especially in a first-term president, the first midterms are considered to be a referendum and usually the referendum is bad um, for the incumbent. But I think after the um, the polls went so drastically wrong um, at the last presidential election, I think that everybody, um, including the pair of us in the studio, are very, very reluctant um, either to, to go with the polls that there are um, or to submit anything of our own. Um, and I tend you know, if you're going to gamble just a little bit, I wouldn't mind betting that the Democrats are going to do less well than they currently think they are. Well, the, the thing is with midterms, Joy, often very little changes because so many congressional districts in particular are so risably gerrymandered that they're, they're, mm. pretty, they're pretty much jobs for life. But um, 
Trump has been going full Trump the last couple of weeks. Uh, today, in fact, in the last couple of hours, he's announced that the US will reinstate all sanctions against Iran, something he has announced on Twitter with a Game of Thrones-themed uh, JPEG of himself. I'm not making this up. That is that is, that is literally what he has done. Um, how equable do you imagine his response is going to be should the Republicans get duffed up on Tuesday? Well, I mean, I th- I think he is going to be able to blame a number of factors. Uh, the um, and uh, uh, there may well be some further anti-Semitism. There may well be more attacks on uh, the fake news media. Uh, it, I, I, the thing is, rather like Mary, I'm rather reluctant to decide which way this is going to go because he has it's such command of the media at this point in time on the way of the election. I mean, you can't. There is no single Democratic figure who's actually leading the media charge. And he has so taken on the agenda. I mean, he's typically, if you want to kind of do well in the polls, you have a war. His war is actually sending the military down to um, the the Mexican border. And he can continue fighting this particular war. So I would say I would be very surprised if the Democrats do hurt in any particular way. And it's only, and we're talking about, there's only sort of a handful of seats that could swing it one way or the other. And the polling is certainly not showing the Democrats are going to do it at the moment. Uh, Mary, again, and this is clinging possibly somewhat wishfully to the the, the prospect of Trump uh, getting a major going over from the electorate. Is it unthinkable that in those circumstances he would actually start disputing the result? Personally, I don't see that. Um, I may be wrong. All sorts of things can happen. Um, But it doesn't strike me that um, this time, compared even with the presidential election, where it seemed he didn't expect or want the presidency, nonetheless, he was talking about disputing the result practically before (laughs) it had happened. Um, This time, we don't hear any of this. And of course, it's not his job, although it's the way his job will work. It's not his job itself that's in contention this time time around. Um, And I think in some ways this is why it's so difficult to call. Because yes, on the one hand, it's a referendum on two years of Trump. But on the other hand, it's the whole of the House of Representatives is up for re-election. And while most of the seats are entirely safe seats, some of them aren't. And those may be fought on Trump or they may be fought on very narrow local issues. And it's trying to judge the difference there, which way they're going to swing, whether it's local issues or whether it's national issues, that's so difficult to judge. And I said the other thing is that Trump has discovered the power of the executive order, which um, he's been using with such aplomb that he must be looking at this election thinking, well, there's so much I can actually do without even worrying too much about. I mean, he does obviously need it for some major legislation, but he's managed to do a huge number of things literally just by signing a piece of paper. And And I think the other thing, too, is that when we sort of laugh and scorn and express horror from time to time at the tweeting, this actually goes down pretty well in middle America because they feel that they're sort of in on the act of the administration. They feel that they're, that, that they're involved in a way that in past presidents, presidencies they haven't been. Um, and this is a plus for the president. Uh, Joy, you spoke of the lack of an obvious Democratic figurehead, but a couple of Democrats have emerged as national figures mm. during this election. And, and win or lose, if you look at someone like Andrew Gillum running for governor of Florida or Beto O'Rourke uh, continuing 
contesting Ted Cruz's Senate seat in Texas. Are, are we looking either, in either instance at a, at a future president, do you think? Well, I, I mean, that's clearly what is happening and everybody is desperate for it. Beto O'Rourke has uh, now become a household name internationally for, um, I presume, again, through excellent social media, uh, an extraordinary this kind of desire to find the next candidate but the Democrats are in a mess and they've known they've been in a mess for a year, year and a half as they try and find that next person Uh, who takes on Trump uh, is also a question of who is going to be able to turn the base or at least pick off that base or at least silence the base enough that they can actually begin to win some votes and it has to be somebody with a bit more punch than Hillary Well, let's look now, uh, if we can stand it, at British politics. Not for the first time, an amount of fun is being had at the expense of David Cameron on the basis of a dubiously sourced story in a newspaper known for a willingness to invoke the too-good-to-check clause of the journalist's charter when tempted by a tasty headline. This time, it is reported that the extremely former Prime Minister is mulling a return to politics and fancies himself as Foreign Secretary, no less. Given that Cameron's signature accomplishment while in Downing Street was yanking the UK out out of the EU by accident, such an appointment would seem at least as likely as not to result in war with Bolivia or New Zealand. Um, Mary, has has David Cameron done enough for us, do you think? (laughs) Well, you have to feel slightly sorry for David Cameron. I know this is rather difficult. It's far from compulsory. Because when you saw the viciousness of the tweets that were coming out almost immediately the story appeared, I mean, it it should have kiboshed his chances absolutely the most moment there was any hint of this. Um, the idea, the tone of them was, well, you did so well for us last time around. Um, so on a serious page, I would also say that if it is true, even a fraction true, that he has his eyes on foreign secretary, foreign affairs was the thing that he did almost worst of anything he did while he was in office as Prime Minister. That is a hotly contested field. He travelled extremely badly. He, <laughs> he couldn't even go down well in the United States pre-Trump. He was a disaster in Europe. He had Clegg sort of rushing around the world, rushing on the phone lines to clear up the mess that Cameron had left behind with practically every country in the world. Um, so Foreign Secretary really doesn't seem to be his job, especially if um, the catchphrase for Brexit Britain is global Britain. Uh, Joy, this is this is where I'm going to play the uncomprehending colonial asking you to explain an aspect of British, well, specifically English life, which, which baffles me despite my several decades now living here. David Cameron, is he not, is an absolute exemplar of this peculiar class of English person who just seems completely unsackable, indestructible, Whatever is, there is nothing they can screw up so badly that they don't uh, th- think that they're entitled to another job. That they don't. Well, not only that they don't think they're entitled to another job, but somebody will give them another job. Well, the thing about David Cameron is he's always been given a job. So when he sort of enters into sort of grown-up life after university, somebody from his family calls up to ECHQ and says, "Give this boy a job." Two thousand and five, he contests, you know, for Conservative leader. Uh, he's wholly unqualified, but he still gets it because they need a fresh face. Um, the jobs he's had since, 
He is, uh, you know, poor boy is having to write his um, biography in the house of Lord Rothschild in London, I happen to know. He's got Lord Chatlington, his neighbour in the Cotswolds, has given him a job doing this uh, British China fund. He hasn't ever really... I hoped you were going to say clearing out the gutters there, but... I mean, you know, it is part of this kind of being sort of, you know, rising on the kind of updraft of your father's farts all the way through life. And there he is at the moment, sort of abandoned, with nobody picking him up. So he just will take a tilt for it. You have to Bear in mind the other person who felt he was entitled to be foreign secretary and when he was given the job was uh, Boris Johnson, that another a, Etonian. A, a, a qualified success, I think we can describe that, <laughs> that interregnum as. Um, Mary, I, I did want to talk more widely about the idea of the political comeback. I mean, it's do they ever work? Because I, I, I understand just at a human level, I can well understand why it's hard for people, especially when they've been at the top level of politics, which is an incredibly uh, exciting and stimulating and high pressure environment to get dumped out of that and to find yourself, you know, sitting in a caravan in your garden, writing your doubtless, completely unreadably well, tedious memoir. Well, even that memoir. apparently is a myth. Apparently he's been sitting in mansion in London writing yes, his memoir. one of the most really? expensive houses. I like the shed idea <laughs> better. trendy shed, yeah. Okay, well, but nonetheless, so, so at a human level we can sympathise. Yeah, you, you would miss all that. Uh, of course you would. But d- does it ever go well when they come back? Well, I think in some ways the Americans maybe do this better than we do. You've got, you've um, got your eight years clear off. Well, you get your eight years. Maybe that is your comeback. Because when you look, when, when you look back, um, Bill Clinton did a spectacular comeback. He was booted out as governor of Arkansas after his first term. Indeed and he, he came back and he not only sat in the governorship for the best part of eight years, but he, then he became president and served full eight years, just. Um, now, not going to like this particularly, but Richard Nixon reinvented himself twice. Um, he lost the presidential election first time True. around. He became president. Then he was impeached, um, but resigned before he could actually be um, removed from office. And very gradually, very slowly, he reinvented himself as um, what I regret to say and say extremely grudgingly um, was a rather competent and insightful um, commentator on foreign affairs. What about you, Joy? Do you have any any favourite comebacks of politicians, whether they've been favourite because they've been resonant successes or or favourite because they've just been entertaining calamities? Well, I always like um, the idea that Churchill goes off to North Africa to just go and paint um, to get through his um, uh, low patch in his career. He had a great many comebacks. He had a great many comebacks. But the the great many comebacks is Peter Mandelson, who was Tony Blair's right-hand man, who managed to have three comebacks altogether in the space (laughs) of Tony Blair's premiership. Uh, The first, there there was a a dodgy house deal alone that he hadn't declared. There was a question about passports. So he managed to get himself sacked twice. But he was so key to that administration that they kept having to find jobs for him. And the the first time he came back, the press was sort of, you know, our jaws dropped. The second time, we just thought, this is ridiculous. There is no, you know, resignation no longer means resignation. You know, shame is is over. Uh, I'm... Did I think I did the last interview that Kevin Rudd gave as Australia's foreign minister before he went back in an eventually successful, if only briefly successful, attempt to get his previous job uh, as prime minister back? Um, and it was it was a, a strange conversation for a number of reasons. In that you know you you get to that point in a question with any politician where you have to say to them, "I'm now going to ask the question you know I'm going to ask, and I know you're not going to answer." Um, 
But is it is it just hubris, Mary? Are, are there people who are genuinely entitled to think of themselves as a person of destiny uh, who, who who cannot be, you know, who for the good of their country uh, cannot <laughs> and should not be deprived of high office? Well, I suppose the prime example of that would be General de Gaulle, who thought of himself as the man of destiny and he persuaded... Literally, he the, literally thought he was the state, didn't he? And persuaded the Brits against their better judgment to allow him to return to France and take the helm um, and uh, then of course um, left the space for him to say non for the British to join the European Union and in retrospect maybe it has to be said that his sense of destiny was pretty much right on both counts. Joy, are there any currently retired politicians you'd like to see come back? Because the thing that has been remarked upon certainly in, in well since the Brexit vote funnily enough it's been remarked upon a few times by very sort of Labour voting, indeed, Labour membership holding friends of mine, that all things considered, you would take John Major back in a heartbeat. That's <laughs> literally the first thing that yeah, comes to who, mind. Who, who was a, a figure of scorn and ridicule most of the time he was Prime Minister and was ushered out of office in an absolute electoral thrashing. Ah, but when he left office, he went off and watched the cricket very quietly and then he became a, a, a patron or chairman of the cricket club and he did a few, you know, he did low-key speaking to us and, in fact, he's conducted himself with such dignity since he left office uh, and suddenly he seems like a sensible man in a world of madness so we'd have the grey man back it is weird how history changes things uh, we are going to take a short break now you're listening to Midori House with me Andrew Muller along with Mary Dijewski and Joy Ladico. coming up next is a cleaned up Amsterdam still Amsterdam The Escapist takes you to places less explored. In this special edition, we hop on a hodgepodge of connecting trains to recreate the story journey of the Orient Express from London to Istanbul. We pass by drive-through liquor stores and small desert towns on an adventurous road trip from New Orleans to Texas and visit Europe's highest airports. For the jet setters among you, we'll show you how to beat jet lag in cities from Hong Kong to LA and reveal our annual travel top 50, highlighting the best in transport and service from the most picturesque rail journey to the airline you'll want to board for your next trip. Perhaps that next flight will deliver you to Cairo or Madeira or the island of Tashima. We'll take you there and we'll tell you where to stay, drink and dine next time you find yourself far from home. We've even put together a wardrobe for wherever your travels may lead you, as well as an eclectic selection of books and songs to keep you entertained on the journey, when you're not too busy looking out the window spotting the places you've yet to visit. The Escapist from the Editors and Bureau of Monocle magazine is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Millister. With me are Mary Dijewski and Joy Ladeko. And let's look now at Amsterdam, which has long struggled to find a balance between profiting from the customers attracted by its red light district and keeping the city bearable for the people who actually live there. Amsterdam's mayor, Femke Halsema, plans to issue permits for sex workers for locations elsewhere in the city in recognition that Divalen, the area long known for its crimson-hued windows, has become a dismal swamp of drunken, gawping tourists and an increasingly grim environment for the women who work there. Um, Joy, I don't know how well you know that district of Amsterdam. It's not the streets I walk down regularly when I go to Amsterdam, well, but I have, I have been past and I too have gawped. Um, but this, is, this brings me to my question, because they're not Amsterdam streets I walk down regularly myself, because it's, it's 
gruesome. It's a really, really depressing part of an otherwise lovely city. Well, it's mainly because of the, the uh, international tourists, well, rather than that, the women in the windows. That's absolutely the case. But it is, and this is my own contention, is the underbelly, in inverted commas, of any given city usually, frankly, an overrated dump? Like a, a much nicer idea than it is a reality? Um well, I find I'm, I live in Soho in this central. This is why I, I'm asking you. Yes, I live in Soho in central London, uh, which has traditionally been the red light district. Now it's become the law changed. You basically couldn't have red lights hanging from your windows. You couldn't have girls hanging out from first floor windows summoning you up anymore. And it's now become very discreet. And in fact, a lot of the um, prostitution work has moved out of Soho. I'm not necessarily sure that's a good thing because, in fact, it's a central district, incredibly well policed. Um, uh, but there were some significant laws that changed that meant that you couldn't put things on display. So there was no more gawping to be had. So men, you can still see men going up what they call walk-ups, which are stairways up to first floor flats, and it's far more discreet. Um, would I, and it's still got sex shops and so forth, but is it a bad thing? I'd rather it was in the centre of town. I was rather it was actually part of our identity as a city, because it is actually part of humanity, um, and it be allowed and be well looked after. Um what I found interesting with Amsterdam was the, desi- the women's desire for anonymity seems to be why they're being moved on. And you would think... This that, is a, a response, presumably, to camera phones. Uh, it, At least in part. Presumably it was camera phones and gawping, but also that nobody was buying. That uh, why would you pose in a window if nobody's actually going to come in and um, spend any money? But is this a question of, uh, I guess, that particular Amsterdam model, Mary, being overtaken by technology? Well... In part, that is possible because it used to be that um, either it was the shop windows or the um, or the red lights, um, or it was the little cards in in London in phone kiosks. Um, but you don't need to do any of that anymore. The mobile phone has taken over from everything. Um, so yes technology has taken over but I thought there was, there was, there was a rather um, sweet aspect to um, to the Dutch um, consideration of moving um, the girls out of this particular district of saying that you know, it was for their quality of life um, well I think uh, you know that's something that maybe every capital should aspire to. It's a very Dutch attitude isn't it very whereas Dutch. I think in Britain it's, people are shoved away and moved on to try and clean up a district. Um, that is true but has it has it been a good thing for Amsterdam? It is. It is a thing, of course. Everybody knows about Amsterdam. But again, and this is, you know, obviously an imposition of my own personal prejudices, prejudices upon the conversation. It just seemed to me to make the city a, a magnet for all the tourists that I think every other city in the world was very glad weren't coming to visit them. Well, they're having the same problem with um, uh, marijuana and talking about trying to either ban tourists from uh, smoking it or uh, so locals can. But again, you're not meant to turn up they would like to create a situation where you can't just turn up as a foreigner and buy it because, again, they've developed such an international reputation for now sex and drugs uh, that they're overrun with people who have a particular idea of the city. You know, Amsterdam is a kind of beautiful historic city with amazing art, beautiful canals, kind of great banking, great exactly. media you industry. you don't actually have um, to go to the red light district no. of Amsterdam to have a great time I mean, in Amsterdam. I mean, I sort of argue and say over Brexit <laughs> that Amsterdam is going to be one of the great winners from a, a decline in London. But it's not going to be a great city if the front of it is always going to be the sex and drugs and hedonism. Uh, by all means, part of a city, but not the kind of uh, top 
top line of the tourist industry. Mary, do you think in general a red light district, the presence of it or something similar does actually add something to a city? Should they should they be encouraged or cultivated or at least regulated sensibly in the way that the Dutch have attempted to? Well, I think um, sensible regulation is maybe the um, the preferable choice. Um, but if you, if you think about Paris, you know, Paris, it's been a, 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 a sort of absolute, almost a trademark of parts of Paris. Um, and it's, there was a sort of outcry when they tried to do an Amsterdam job of parts of Paris. Um, and to an extent, some of some of Paris has lost a bit of its character. But doesn't doesn't that outcry always come from sort of straightened middle class people who yes, get some vicarious thrill from the idea that this is there, not it, not that they've got any intention of visiting it themselves? Yes, but you know, local colour is local colour, and if you start losing what makes a city or anywhere, what actually gives it part of its identity, then I think you do lose something. I mean, just coming back to where you live, Joy, in, in Soho, has something been lost there, do you think, in the changes in Soho that you were talking about earlier? Well, I, I'm sort of always in two minds about this, because I think we have this idea of, uh, this sort of nostalgic idea of how wonderful it used to be. Now, in the 70s and 80s, it was uh, drug-riddled, police were busting places all the time, there were fights on the street. It was really not very pleasant. Actually, I remember going there as a child with my mother and just thinking, what is this place? So... <laughs> There is now at least a decent conversation going on about how to keep elements of it without um, r- removing all the prostitutes. However, the, the, the developers keep uh, do keep trying to kind of buy up houses and get girls to move on. And uh, I think that is a loss to the area, providing, providing the, the local community actually does look after um, the people within it. And we don't expect everybody to be uh, swish millionaires. We actually like the, the diversity, if you like. Well, finally tonight, uh, Imperial College here in London claims to be on the verge of becoming the first institute of learning to offer lectures by hologram, apparitions beamed in from elsewhere in real time. The technology will enable, in theory, guest lecturers to speak to students from anywhere and Imperial College's own boffins to address audiences around the world. It is not dissimilar in setup to the recent tours by virtual reanimations of Elvis Presley and Michael Jackson, among others, which people have paid to see for some reason. Uh, at this point, I should confess that I am, in fact, in my lounge room. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have been beamed in by the, the, the same uh, sorcery that is going to make this possible. Um, M- Mary, does this uh, alter the learning experience, do you think? Well, I think the um, the people whose business it is to hype new technology obviously hope that people are going to fall for this one. Um, and certainly when, when you look at the sort of um, the trials of this, then it all looks very impressive and seductive and indeed I mean it could be an answer for keeping the atmosphere of these cities and having the sort of virtual hologram prostitutes wandering (laughs) up the streets that might be the perfect solution as far as using them for for sort of lectures, for conferences and all that sort of thing um, I find it, yes it may be a bit more effective than say having people um, on a screen um, projected and these um, when you have presentations, when you're at a conference and you have these presentations from people at a distance then you do notice that uh, however vivid they may be on the screen nonetheless people do sort of stop listening a lot earlier that it's harder to concentrate when they're um, when they're not actually physically there um, 
So this may create the illusion more effectively, but I can't believe it's going to make that vast difference. I think being there and not being there are crucially different. I mean, there is, all jokes aside, Joy, some uh, quite exciting applications of this, the idea that a one particular brilliant professor could address audiences all over the world at mm. once, which could open up um, learning and education to, to people who may not previously have had that kind of access to it. I mean, this could be a good thing, couldn't it? Well, I mean, it's I'm, not every day you catch me saying that about technological advances. I, I, I do understand that, but um, there was something. There's an interesting figure. So this is not technically a hologram, which costs about 150,000 pounds. This is, is a, 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 a projection, which costs several thousand pounds. Now, most lecturers are not paid several thousand pounds to turn up for a lecture for an hour. So it is actually quite expensive technology, anyway. That the, cost will come down, though, as it always does. It's not going to come down to a lecturer's fee. Let me tell you that. <laughs> there is this amazing website called YouTube, which is about the third or fourth. <laughs> Uh, largest website in the world. Let, let me could, write that down. That how, do you, how, how are you spelling that? <laughs> and um, I think you'll find that there's a huge number of people who are actually can broadcast via that and are watched via that. And it's, it, it, a number of universities, including Harvard, put videos out that you can regularly watch their lecturers anyway. Now, if you're sufficiently interested in the subject, uh, uh, and you can watch it for free without paying any fees for university. So this is uh, it's a nice idea to, see, to get you to sign up. But if you actually want to educate the world, stick it on YouTube. Have either of you or would either of you go and attend one of those concerts by a hologrammatic representation of a, a long-dead entertainer? Only if it were presented as um, some art form rather than an actual concert or performance of that sort. What I prefer the idea is that, uh, I mean, this I probably would have done had I had to sign into lectures, is a hologram of myself sitting in that lecture during <laughs> university. Uh, <laughs> because See, the, the attendance, my attendance was a little bit thin, now, it has to be that, said. That <laughs> is an idea I think that you could definitely sell. Uh, and that does bring us to the end of today's show. Mary Dijewski and Joy Ladiko, thanks for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Bill Lutie, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Barbara Maimone. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. I'm back with the Foreign Desk tomorrow at midday London time, where I will be asking, does the world still need ambassadors? Spoiler alert, yes. Midori House returns at the same time on Monday, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. <laughs> <laughs>